Thanks for listening to Shift Your Spirits. I'm Slade Robertson. For 13 years, I've been a professional intuitive counselor and personal development blogger. I try to talk about spirituality with fewer hearts and flowers than most New Age blather. I also mentor emerging intuitives, psychics, and healers in a program called Automatic Intuition. It is Saturday, April 20th, 2019, as I record this introduction. This week, I have a part three to my love curse. I'm sharing the work I'm doing to identify the roots and patterns of my issues in a way that hopefully you can adopt for your own process. Now, this is a follow-up episode to The Love Curse and to the episode with Asa Posh, Reversing the Spell, so you will want to have listened to both of those in order to get the most out of this episode. As always, there's an oracle segment at the end of the show, so be thinking about a question or a concern you have. Hold it in your mind. I'll come back on after the final links and credits and leave you with that extra message. Before I forget, I do want to say a quick thank you to Danielle Skiandra, my newest supporter on Patreon. A special shout out to Patty for the fantastic extra conversation on Good Friday. And thank you to all of you who continue to pledge your support. It demonstrates that you're enjoying the show and want it to continue. It's very encouraging to me, so thank you. To find out how you can become a patron, support my time in producing this show, and access some extra bonus content, please go to patreon.com slash shiftyourspirits. This is a follow-up episode to The Love Curse and to the episode with Asa Posh, Love Curse Part 2, Reversing the Spell. So this is Love Curse Part 3. Just a quick disclaimer, this is not shamanism. Nothing that I'm going to share with you here today is based in a formal practice of soul retrieval. I warned Asa about this going into this process with me, that part of what I may do is extract some wisdom from her, um, some insights, and then see what I can do with that information on my own. And she very much gave me that blessing. She knew that we were experimenting. So shout out to her um, and, and know that I'm not really, you know, doing this behind her back or against her recommendations or anything like that. I am notoriously eclectic. I'm not a fundamentalist or a traditionalist. I'm sure... Some people might criticize me for not studying this process more and following a more strict version of some kind of um, reversal ritual or or what have you. Um, Here's my philosophy about self-help books and programs and practice and all that stuff. There's usually one thing. At least one. Sometimes there are a few others. But there's usually one really big thing that's an epiphany for me. It's an aha. It's a moment where I connect the dots and I say, cool. I grab that part and then I incorporate it into my daily life, into my thought processes, into how I police the voices in my head. Whatever it might be, I take it in and I plant it in my garden and it becomes one of the things that grow there. That's kind of the way that I work with things. Um, So my process with all this, rather than doing shamanic journeying and soul retrieval, 
I'm just starting with the questions that I had and some of the answers and, and more questions that Osa presented to me in our conversation. And I intended to take those into my free associative writing practice, you know, into my automatic writing, into my morning pages, um, and also into divine dialoguing, which just to explain that really quickly, it's one of the foundations in automatic intuition, which is this idea of connecting with the higher self, with your guides, with the records, with wherever it is that you're retrieving um, information. The channel can either be, you know, straight out of your mouth in a speaking form, or it could be writing it down either longhand or typing or whatever. So to me, automatic writing and divine dialoguing or channeling, they're all kind of coming from the same um, stream of information. And they're different formats for collecting and curating and sharing and analyzing that stream of data. So these are my tools. This is how I do everything my own personal um, development and psychotherapy, my readings with clients, whatever it might be. There's a lot of basis in neurolinguistic programming and with writing. You know, that's just kind of my jam. So I want to share with you guys a bit about how I have been processing all this since my um, first two episodes about it. Um, you know, what do you do with it? You may want to work with a practitioner like Asa and have her walk you through it. You might want to do a more formal ritual practice of some kind. And I still may come back to her at some point in this process and say, what else do you have in your toolkit that we might use for this? But in the meantime, here's what's kind of happened on my own. And I'm sharing this uh, with myself um, by describing it to you guys, I'm working without notes here. I'm kind of doing one of my off-the-cuff episodes. Um, and I'm also wanting to kind of share with her um, what I've done since our conversation ended. So I'm just going to put it out there to everyone involved all at once. Um, the story I was telling was about these two major relationship events that happened. One at 19 and then one at 29. These magic spells that I was doing, playing with um, relationships and love magic. But after my conversation with Asa, I realized that these episodes in my life were about self-defense and protection. That was one of her big insights to me was that this isn't really about love. It's about protecting yourself. So where does that come from? Richard was the one who told me that I didn't have to keep defending myself so violently. I shared that in the first episode. So there was a clue there um, that came right out of my own mouth. Okay. So that was happening before, before the episode with him ever went down, there were traces of this self-defense issue going way back. So I started to kind of work my way back and, and, and thought, okay, well, what was going on in high school? 
you know, um, I defended myself in high school in a completely different way than a lot of people were bullied. If you called me fag, I slashed your tires. I put sugar in your gas tank. I was not afraid of punching someone. I was not afraid of kicking someone in the nuts as a first move. Uh, it's considered a dishonorable way to fight. But you know what? I just wanted to make sure that the people who were trying to hurt me were afraid of me. That was my goal. Um, I had an incident where a guy was repeatedly body slamming me outside a classroom in the hallway. It was like a particular classroom and time of day. And it happened over and over and over again. And my algebra teacher was there to witness it. And so one day, you know, I sharpened a pencil and carried my books across my arms with the pencil in my hand in such a way that if he did it to me again, he would stab himself with a pencil. And that happened. And um, she looked the other way because she understood that I was defending myself rightfully so. My school had a policy back then in the 80s. I would have been expelled just for getting body slammed if it had been reported, let alone defending myself. Uh, So even if the teacher had reported, hey, this guy is body slamming this other kid, we would have both been dealt with zero tolerance and both been suspended, which is just bullshit. But anyway, so I figured, you know what, if I'm going to get in trouble for being hit, I'm going to hit back. That was kind of my policy. Um, You know, it was, there was the archetype of the crazy girl in, in, in the breakfast club, you know, the weird goth kid that people are kind of afraid of that is rumored to be mentally ill. I embraced some of that as a kind of defense mechanism. I let people think that I would go apeshit on them and that I was capable of doing anything because just that thought alone kept a lot of people from bothering me. So, you know, that had to come from somewhere too. So I started to follow these milestone violence events this fighting thing, this self-defense and, you know, fear of being harmed and all that backwards in time, you know, not regressing in any kind of hypnosis or doing any kind of special witchcraft here, just intellectually, consciously, wide awake as I'm taking a shower, as I'm doing the dishes, as I'm driving in my car, just thinking about all this stuff that came out in my conversation with Asa and talking to Seth about it, you know, just processing. And as I started to work my way back, I found an even earlier age when I was seven, when I was being bullied at the bus stop. And my parents, after listening to me come in, you know, whining and complaining about this kid and what he was doing, he was an older kid too. I was in second grade. He was in fifth grade, I think. My parents convinced me that if I hit him, he would leave me alone. Now, this took some real convincing. And once they even had me intellectually convinced that this is the way to go, it still took some time for me to work up the courage to do it. But they insisted, if you hit him in the face, he will never do it again. He will leave you alone. And my mother was actually the one that said, kick him in the nuts. 
take him down so that he can't even hurt you back. Start off there. And you know what? It worked. It worked really well. And I think that the fifth graders' parents came to complain and realized once they got there that, you know, your seven-year-old beat up my asshole 10-year-old and it was kind of never went anywhere. So I was really honestly kind of drunk with the power of it because I didn't get hurt. Nobody hit me back. I just lashed out and defended myself and it was put in the ground. That kid never bothered me again. And there were other instances around that age. My next door neighbor, he was bullying me, um, calling me a fag, calling me a sissy. I shot him with a BB gun. I I aimed at his legs. (laughs) You know, I didn't shoot him in the face. Um, But... Oh my God, I got in so much trouble for that. I never had a gun again as a kid. No, any kind of firearms for me. Um, There was another instance where around that same time period where um, another kid was making fun of me and I put my fist through a window because he, when I tried to fight him, he ran away from me and he went and locked himself in his garage and then started screaming at me through one of the little garage windows. And he thought I couldn't get to him. And so he was tormenting me from behind the glass and I just put my hand through the glass. He wasn't hurt. Nobody was ever hurt, but my parents were mortified. I got in a lot of trouble. We had to go and fix his window and apologize to their family. And, you know, it was terrible. And I was given boxing gloves and um, taught to kind of fight in a more constructive way because my parents felt like I needed an outlet for this anger and um, something that was less free for all, but maybe just to channel that into an actual physical activity where it belonged But I kept going back in my memories. Okay, well, how far back did it go? Was that the first time or was there something even earlier? And it did go earlier. It went way further back. And I got all the way back to the event that happened when I was four years old. And I can't share that in detail on this episode. I'm not sure that I can speak about it without kind of breaking down a little bit. And I really don't want to throw a member of my family under the bus who's not here to defend themselves. Um, Suffice it to say, something happened to me that involved physical abuse uh, layered with homophobic motivation and language and here's the takeaway. You don't really even need to know the details beyond because there's so many gay men that have their own version of this story. The important part for me in doing this work about this curse is realizing that at four years old, I remember standing my ground and this voice came out of me and it really was like I was channeling Satan himself. It was a really evil, demonic sounding, big, low voice 
and I said, I will never forget that you did this to me. And I never did. I never have. Not only did I not forget, but for a long time I never forgave it. I forgave it much later in my 20s and early 30s when I realized that this person was younger than I was at that age, you know, um, when this happened. I was really dealing with someone who was relatively pretty young to me now. And there was a lot of fear motivating what happened. You know, I forgave it because you're supposed to forgive this shit, right, in order to move on. Now, one thing that Seth pointed out is just because you forgive the person for doing that to you doesn't make the wound go away. It's not like it erases it or keeps it from happening. Uh, So the whole idea of forgiveness is a different component than being wounded in this way that has festered. So that part of me that was so easily drunk with power at seven and then again as a teenager and then again in my relationship with Richard was someone who was fighting for their existence. And Osa nailed it when she said, you know, there's so much defensiveness in the way you speak about this. There's so much language about being attacked. And, you know, that was the curse. I cursed someone else, really, in self-defense. And, you know, the witches read is everything you put out comes back to you three times over. I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of that in there. If a four-year-old can be guilty of defending themselves against abuse and then, you know, create karma from it, I don't know. Um, But that event, that violence related to my sexual identity and my safety in my own self, in my own body, it fucked up all my relationships with men, especially. And... So rather than being in the closet, I never really was in the closet. I embraced being gay as a big fuck you to that violence against me for being gay. Because what could be worse than not cowering down and doing the thing that you've been told to do? You know, the ultimate middle finger was to go all the way with it. And embrace it and identify with it and and I did and I don't know what instinct made it go that way for me when so many other people went the other way and maybe it's because I was in a relatively safe and loving environment and I had um you know a whole lot of things building me up so that wasn't enough to to take me down so I'm not putting it out there that I'm somehow special. I'm just saying that that's how I reacted to it. And it still poisoned me for ever in a way that became insidious and hard to name. And that went all the way through school. You know, I cursed the first perpetrator of homophobia at four. I started fighting people for calling me a fag at seven. And I did that all the way through junior high and high school and all the way up through the moment when I found myself doing it to Richard. My ability to love, to be in a love relationship, 
is not really what this curse is about. It's about an existential threat to who I am, my identity. So when he made our breakup about my writing, about my sense of purpose, he threatened my identity again, my very existence, my sense of why I'm here at all was under attack. So there's a a through story. There's a story arc here. And there were chapters, there were entire books and prequels before the one in the series that I shared as the love curse. I didn't know it at the time I recorded this for you guys. I didn't know I was jumping in in the middle of the show. So I had to kind of go back to the beginning and binge watch. It's like if you came in on a series and you're like, oh, this show's really cool. I'm going to go get on Netflix now and watch the earlier seasons. So I had to do some kind of binge time traveling through my life. Okay, so how do you fix that? How do you retrieve the part of you that broke away? Or how do you heal that thing that's wounded? You've identified, okay, it's a four-year-old self that's been beat to shit. What can you do? And so that's what I was kind of stuck with there for a week or so, just pondering and, and trying to think of what I was supposed to do with this information. And I was thinking about the concepts of soul retrieval and um, Oss's description about how, you know, a part of you breaks away. You lose a part of your soul when these traumatic events happen to you. And I started thinking about the clinical idea of multiplicity, uh, which is no longer really considered a disorder, but one of the ways in which the brain protects itself, the mind protects itself against really, really significant abuse and trauma is these compartmentalizations that happen. And so as I was, you know, feeling my way through all this information, I started to have these images of pieces of myself breaking away, like shards of time. Like there's a film strip and there are these pieces that got cut because they couldn't be a part of my story. They had to be yanked out. And they exist like, it reminds me of the old Superman movies from the 80s, the ones with Christopher Reeve, where they imprison the villains in this kind of like broken piece of a mirror that's floating through space. And so I saw this part of myself. It wasn't a piece of me, like a limb that's missing. It was a moment in time that was edited out and encapsulated in this shard. And it exists in a loop, a time loop. Like you have those memories, those flashes from that event that happened to you. And you can sort of, they're just moments, they're seconds. They're like gifts you know, the little digital moving images. They're just these little moments that play over and over again. They're memories. But from a soul perspective, they're a part of my spirit that is stuck in these little time loops. 
like horcruxes or something um if you want to use a harry potter <laughs> conceptualization um so yeah i started to become aware of the fact that there is a four-year-old version of myself that is stuck in a time loop where he's being beaten for being gay over and over and over again and has since it happened it's it's out there it's floating around in the space of my existence of my consciousness okay so how do you communicate with that you know what how do i get him out of there so that was the other place that i was stuck as i was driving around as i was in the shower as i was cutting the lawn as i was sweeping the driveway that's what i'm working on right like okay again like i said just asking these questions like how do i get to him and if i do how do i break him out so of course i thought well you know i'll i'll journal about it i'll sit down at some point and i'll just you know i'll really just do some kind of free floating writing with those questions and i was procrastinating doing that a little bit i couldn't find the right moment it wasn't like i could put it on my to-do list like thursday at 10 um retrieve four-year-old self from time shard you know it just i don't know i kept waiting to have a moment an, an impulse to do it um because this isn't like a book i'm writing this is a piece of working on myself that doesn't need to come from this really emotional place it does need to be inspired i need to be connected to it emotionally i can't just examine it intellectually that's one of my faults in in my astrological chart if i do a relationship composite with anyone it always brings up the fact that i intellectualize my emotions instead of feeling them it's like great okay well you know what do you do if that's what you do? Well, I ended up doing it in the car. I was driving. It was a beautiful day. I was listening to some music. I was actually feeling very joyful. I was feeling a moment of, oh, all is right in the world. And that's when the inspiration hit me. Not, you know, oh, gloom and doom. It's early in the morning and I'm drinking coffee and I've got to go there. It was this moment of of music joy in the car cranked up and I remembered that moment when I was yoga traveling. You remember that when I when I told you on an early episode about how I have these um, dreamlike travels during Chavasana at the end of a yoga class and I had that whole vision where my shadow kind of swam up from underneath me and like wanted me to spoon him um so uh that has a bit of a musical element to it as well and so here i was driving my car and i saw my four-year-old self in his shard and i suddenly felt just bowled over with the trauma of what was happening to him and the fact that he didn't know it was happening to him over and over again. It was his entire existence was living in that moment. And I felt this need to go there and rescue him like an angel beaming in or a visitor from the future projecting into that moment and rescuing him, breaking him out like an episode of Star Trek. And so I started to just imagine, you know, how that scene would play out. And 
once I was in there, I was like, okay, what do I say to this little kid as my adult self appears to him in this moment of crisis and pain? I'm there to rescue him. What do I say? What's the dialogue? How do I convince a four-year-old to come with me? Because he was there because we put him there. And at the time, that's all we were was that four-year-old self. So um, I knew that there was some part of my consciousness that could just snap my fingers and make him not be there anymore, right? Like intellectually, philosophically, that should be the case. A lot of people have written to me and said, oh, well, you just decide not to feel that way anymore. Okay, well, yeah, that's great. Let's all do that about everything that messes us up. Easy fix. Um and I, you know, I ended up completely in tears because I started to speak to him out loud as I'm driving, trying to explain to him what's going on and convince him that he doesn't have to be there, that he can come with me, that there is a place where I live now where the things that threaten him are no longer a threat, that the thing that he is protecting himself against is not relevant in the same way anymore, that I have this place that he can come and be all of the things that he was attacked for in pure open joy, Um, because he's less likely to be attacked, but he's also protected by me, so it's it can't happen on my watch kind of thing, and I was, you know, I do most of this stuff in a kind of intellectual place. I'm really not emotional about it. I wasn't as emotional on the show that I would have, as I would have thought I would have been. And, you know, I even, you know, gave a little bit of disclaimer. And by the way, if you ever do a reading for me, I don't react very much in the moment. Sometimes my emotional responses come way later. So if you tell me amazing news, (laughs) my response is sometimes kind of underwhelming. I apologize. But so here's the point at which it overwhelmed me. In the car, where so much of my (laughs) magic dialoguing happens, because I can't write, so I start talking. I was honestly afraid when I got off the interstate that I was going to get pulled over and arrested. And if uh, a cop saw my face, he would think that I was on something. You know, my eyes were red and I was um, driving while shattered. Just driving while completely undone. Having a psychological breakthrough in the car. Here's the important thing. As you start thinking about, okay, this process conceptually, what I'm hoping happens is that you now apply that to some of your stories. And the younger versions of yourself that have been in captivity have not had the chance to evolve and grow the way that your present self has. Those younger versions of ourselves have not had those experiences. They haven't benefited from any of that um, growth or evolution. You have to give them time to assimilate, to learn this world that you live in, to become a part of it. You kind of have to adopt these parts of yourself and raise them from those younger moments forward. Give them a chance to catch up. Give them life and experience. Um to 
allow them to grow up. And maybe it will happen at a, you know, advanced rate of speed. Maybe it won't take 46 years for that to happen. It might take a matter of months or days or weeks. I don't know. But what I do know is you can't just throw them in the car with you, say they're retrieved, and then carry on and expect them to now participate in all your adult conversations and activities and, you know, the conversations that you have with yourself about stuff that's going on. These are children, probably, right? So... I have some living to do with these younger versions of myself, with the awareness of where they've been and what they've experienced. It's like adopting a car full of spirit children that are also like feral stray cats. But I'm teaching them about our power, about who we are now. And I think it's just an ongoing personal development project. And that's cool. Because I needed something that's not just about my work or about ambition. That's just one quadrant of my life. And that's workaholism. When you just channel everything into work and make it all about that. I need to develop in some purely, truly personal ways. And so this has presented itself to me as something that needed to be healed. And there was one component that I still wanted to be a part of this new spell, this new magic, this this healing magic, this reversal. I needed a new mantra. So shoot the moon is not the mantra for what's going on with what I just described for you here. Shoot the moon is a mantra for a spell to attract my partner. It's an antenna that I've sent up. Shoot the moon is a, you know, a satellite for a specific purpose of communicating with that person. Um it's an invitation for someone to come into my life. But to heal this curse in an ongoing manner requires its own mantra. And I just want to share a little bit about what that looks like for me on paper, like how I create a mantra. And I'm going to use this, you know, very specific example. So, of course, it's a writing exercise for me. It kind of reminds me a little bit about uh, doing marketing brainstorming. Like when you're trying to think of a cool tagline or like a catchy sentence to go on your Facebook ad or, you know, whatever it might be, something to put on a flyer to draw people in that's not just the title of the event or, you know, something more like dialogue, something that speaks to people. And so one of the things that you do is you just start writing down as many of them as you can and you write different versions of them. Even the titles of my podcast episodes usually have three or four versions where I try out you know, different wording. Um, and that's the way I write. Uh, I don't delete things in the moment because I want to have those all those options and iterations that I went through. I want them still to be there. So when I write first drafts of things, I just list, you know, 
there's I can say it this way, I can say it this way, I can say it the same way, but with one word different, I can say it here and change the so I just list all of those things and I can go back later and choose one of them or maybe even go back again a second time and say, nope, you know what, I'm going back to option two or whatever. I want to see all the options there. So that's an exercise that I do and I thought, okay, I'm going to just kind of do that to write a, a new mantra. So I started to think about how that old mantra that was related to the the curse was my magic and words. And it was affirming a very specific place for my magic to be. And I thought, okay, well, I need my magic to be in other places. I need it to be everywhere. I don't just need to be it for it to be in one thing. That's how I got into this trouble. So here are some of the things that I wrote. I'm just going to read them to you so you can see all the different versions of what I was trying to communicate. I wrote down, my magic flows through all areas of my life. That's like an affirmation, right? Like that's one you can put on a sticky note and put on your mirror and say every day. My magic flows through all areas of my life. That's what I want to communicate. But I still want something punchier. I want something quicker. I need a spell. I need an abracadabra. So I wrote, power flows into and through all areas of my life. Magic flows in all parts of my life. I am powerful. Magic flows in my life. My life is magical. Magic in my life. My magic in words. Magic in my life. My life is magic. So you can see, like, as I start to write those, I'm trying to find a way to say my magic flows through all areas of my life, the affirmation, in as few words and syllables as possible. My life is magic. Magic is in my life. So... I have to keep working on those and see kind of what rolls off the tongue. The fewer words, the better, but it's also, it's kind of like a pet name. It's something that evolves on its own because you keep saying it over and over again. You hear me saying those things like the intro text, the podcast, you'll notice over time, like I lose a word or two here or there, right? It's always getting refined and edited down just a little bit further. So a mantra is like a song I'm working on or something. It's like I'm looking for the perfect chorus, the perfect hook. And I'll just keep working with that. But it's a concept that replaces an older concept that was limiting me. Because you can't take something out without putting something else in. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for holding space for this process for me. From what I've heard in feedback, you can relate to this. You have your own stories. You have your own versions of this kind of pain, this kind of curse, this kind of self-imposed restriction. So what can you employ these techniques for in your own world? Start with questions. Go and have dialogues with your higher self, with your guides. Go and do an automatic writing session with your questions. See what other questions come up. And do the time traveling thing where you start with an event that you feel like, okay, when was the moment when my soul 
got broken and cut up. Can you go back in time and find an earlier instance of that same energy? Because what I've found and what I find often in doing readings for people is that we think we've got problems in five different areas of our life and what we really have is one problem showing up in all these different ways such that we think we have five enemies instead of one, you know, uh, or we think we're messed up all over the place. We're just a wreck when really there's this one story that needs to be rewritten. There's this one child that's locked in a shard of time that needs to be broken free and invited to come live in this new place. Um, yeah. So go do that. Go talk to yourself about it. Go f- retrieve yourself. Go save yourself. And love yourself. Thanks again for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. For show notes, links, transcripts, and all the past episodes, please visit shiftyourspirits.com. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever app you prefer. If you'd like to get an intuitive reading with me or download a free ebook and meditation to help you connect with your guides, please go to sladeroberson.com. And if you're interested in my professional intuitive training program, you can start the course for free by downloading the attunement at automaticintuition.com. Before I go, I promise to leave you a message and answer to a question or concern you may have. So take a moment to think about that. Hold it in your mind or speak it out loud. I'll pause for just a few seconds right now. Okay, so I just pulled a card of the day on my Mystic Mondays app. It's the Eight of Cups. Introspection, deeper purpose, brooding. Dissatisfaction with the day-to-day leads you to reevaluate your life, where you are, and where you're headed. You've strived to get to this point on your path, and you're left feeling unfulfilled, seeking a deeper truth. There's a buzz in your ear to give it all up and chase your joy, even if that doesn't make sense yet. You've decided to take a stand for yourself and your happiness. Comfort in material and physical needs aren't quite cutting it anymore, and you're looking for a deeper connection with your purpose in life. Constant striving and achievement leaves you running on empty, neglecting yourself in the process. You're in the mood for introspection, discovering how to best implement your plans in nourishing ways. Appreciate your journey so far in this transition period. You're ready to move past being comfortable and to start feeding your soul. And I'll talk to you later.